From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchick. The peaceful transfer of power from one administration to the next, from one party to another, may confound others around the globe, but it reflects the underlying strength of our Constitution and rule of law. This peaceful transfer of power is one of the hallmarks of a true democracy and ensuring that this transition as as smooth as possible is a priority for the rest of my presidency. So over the next 75 days, all of us must ensure that the next president and his team can hit the ground running. The peaceful transition of power is one of the hallmarks of our democracy. And over the next few months, we are going to show that to the world. America has much to be proud of today pledges of a new new president and a new vice president, and pledges of support from the loyal opposition, Republican, Democrat, Independent. Today, we're one nation, one people, and our national treasure, our national mission, the cause of human freedom, continues to prosper and light the world. And we know that the best way to enhance freedom in other lands is to demonstrate here that our democratic system is worthy of emulation. In almost 30 episodes of Transition Lab, we've covered every modern presidential transition from Carter to Trump. We've also looked at historic transitions like Lincoln's and FDR's. Today, we're doing a kind of best of, looking at the entire roadmap. What went well? What went wrong? How have transitions improved? This year's the most consequential election of my lifetime and potentially the most consequential transition since 1932. We open today's podcast with a compilation of speeches from 1977 to 2016, each with a president expressing how important the peaceful transition of power is to our democracy. At the Partnership for Public Service, we want to make transitions better, run smoother, and launch faster. We know from history that the effectiveness of an administration is directly correlated to the effectiveness of their transition. But while we focus on what can be improved in transitions and always want them to be better, legendary documentary filmmaker Ken Burns made the point on Transition Lab that while some transitions may have been smoother than others, every peaceful transition is a successful one. Let us step back a little bit and celebrate that since whatever it was, 18, uh, 1797, when George Washington gave up the presidency after two terms and John Adams took over, we have had an unbroken succession of presidential administrations. No troop has been alerted. Nobody's fought and said no. They may have gone unhappily, but they've gone. The very fact unique in human history that we've had this unbroken chain of transitions means it has been, when you step back, terrific. Ken Burns is absolutely right. The peaceful transition of power is an amazing historical legacy of the United States. That being said, without a well-managed transition, a presidency may have a rocky start. Conversely, well-managed transitions can pave the way for successful presidencies. That's why historian Eric Rauschway decided to write a book about FDR's transition into office. I became persuaded that this hundred or so days before Roosevelt took the oath of office for the first time were actually as important as the much more famous hundred days that came after. And in fact, uh, the previous hundred days really paved the way for that burst of legislative activity that happened upon his coming into office. Professor Rauschway encapsulated the partnership's message perfectly. Effective and early transition planning is not an option. It's essential. That's why in January of this year, in addition to speaking with the Trump team about transitioning into a second term, we spoke with almost 10 Democratic campaigns and encouraged them to begin planning for a transition as early as March if they were still standing in the Democratic primary. Harry Truman was the first sitting president to try to organize a smooth transition for whoever would succeed him in 1952. After all, Truman was kept in the dark by FDR for the 82 days when he was vice president. 
As historian Martha Kumar told us, Truman's efforts to encourage Republican Dwight D. Eisenhower and Democrat Adlai Stevenson to prepare for a transition, they didn't go so well. In uh, Truman's case, he decided that he was not going to run and announced it in the uh, winter. And then he thought that uh, it would be good to have both sides come into the White House. It was during the summer of 1952 in August, and he invited Adlai Stevenson and uh, General Eisenhower to come to the White House. Eisenhower was not uh, was not in favor of doing it, so he said he wrote him back turning down the invitation, and in a characteristic uh, Truman response, he wrote, I am extremely sorry that you have allowed a bunch of screwballs to come between us. You have made a big mistake, and I'm hoping it won't injure this great republic. Subsequent presidents would engage in small-scale transition planning, typically gathering a few advisors around them to plan out their first term. The first president to dedicate time, staff, and money to presidential transition planning was Jimmy Carter. My name is Jimmy Carter, and I'm running for president. So why Jimmy Carter? That's one of the first questions we had for Stu Eisenstadt, Carter's top policy aide on the campaign. Jimmy Carter is an engineer. He believes in planning and in advanced planning. And he felt that if he could get a running head start by having a transition team begin to put together the kinds of policies uh, that uh, we would implement, that this would help his presidency. Actually, the reverse happened. While Carter deserves enormous credit for allocating funding and staff resources for transition planning, there was a little rub. He decided not to tell his campaign about it. Stu Eisenstadt and his aide David Rubenstein, who would later become a financial titan and philanthropist, they were both taken by surprise. David and I were heading the policy staff of the campaign. And unbeknownst to us until about a month before the election, Jimmy Carter had a parallel policy planning group for the transition headed by Jack Watson. After the election, Jack took three black, huge binders full of policy recommendations, not one of which had been vetted politically, not one of which had been shared with us, and went down to Plains and, and gave it to Carter. And Carter remarkably appointed Jack to head transition planning instead of the campaign manager and his really brilliant campaign strategist, Ham Jordan. So here we had two parallel groups, Jack's working very much in, in secret because that's the way Carter wanted it, and our policy group, uh, and there had to be a collision, and there was. The separation and secrecy between the campaign and the transition caused several major problems. Here are David and Stu Eisenstadt discussing that conflict. You had people fighting over jockeying over positions, and you couldn't really prepare that well for the new administration because people didn't really know who's going to get what jobs. I think Stuart didn't firmly get his position until two or three weeks before the, the swearing in. Yes, and Frank Moore, who was a congressional liaison, didn't learn until a week before that that was going to be his job. So because you had these parallel structures, because you had this clash, it took up an enormous amount of time. This is one of the key lessons learned and core to the partnership's advice on effective transition planning. Transition teams and campaigns need to work in concert with each other. Because of the nature of the two organizations, there's always a major potential for a clash. The transition team, having spent months going over policy details, they don't want to give up the reins. The campaign staff, on the other hand, they may have the attitude hey, we won the election. Why should the transition team be in charge? Why should they give out the spoils of the victory we earned? When these two teams clash, the results can be damaging. Carter also made another costly mistake, one that other presidents-elect would repeat. He focused on the cabinet first rather than his own White House staff. Carter was obsessed with getting the cabinet done. The White House staff, well, staff people are not that significant. Who cares about staff people? We'll deal with that later. He'd had a relatively modest-sized and capable staff in terms of ability. They weren't extremely famous as a governor. And Governor Carter was always the smartest person in the room, in his view, and he probably was when he was governor. He didn't really feel he had to have very powerful people at the White House staff because, in his view, everything was going to be in the cabinet. Having run as an outsider candidate, Carter also staffed his White House primarily with longtime Georgia allies 
without Washington experience. The White House staff was inexperienced because they were all Georgia people, the so-called Georgia Mafia. And he didn't leaven that staff with someone like Bob Strauss, who was the former chairman of the Democratic National Committee. You see, Carter was running against the legacy of Watergate and Nixon. And part of that legacy was Nixon's powerful chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, who was sent to jail on counts of conspiracy and obstruction of justice. Hoping to signal a change, Carter decided not even to have a White House chief of staff. He decided, for the reasons David very aptly said, to be the opposite of Nixon. So Nixon had Haldeman as the all-powerful chief of staff who blocked everyone from seeing him. So he decided he was going to be his own chief of staff. Here was another major mistake. For a president, a well-oiled White House with experienced hands is critical to success. The job is so big that you need people around you who can execute on your decisions. Without people who know how to work D.C., a White House will struggle to accomplish the president's goals. Eventually, the Carter team would adapt, appointing a White House chief of staff in his second year and acquiring more D.C. experience. The Carter administration would go on to secure a number of important accomplishments in their four years, from energy deregulation to signing the Camp David Accords. Jimmy Carter broke the mold by actually having a transition team. But the way the transition was established, the secrecy of it, and the tension it created ended up undermining his first year in office. Other transition teams would learn from the Carter experience. President Carter would go on to lose a bid for a second term in November 1980 to Ronald Reagan. And just as Carter tried to learn from Nixon and differentiate from him, Reagan was determined not to repeat Carter's mistake. For Reagan, this meant embracing the exact D.C. experts that Carter shunned, and also building a powerful White House operation. Who better to lead the White House than James A. Baker III, one of the most effective operators ever to work in the United States government? When he was elected, Reagan didn't know Baker very well. In fact, Baker had worked to defeat Reagan in the 1976 and 1980 Republican primaries. Here's Jim Baker. Well, I tell people when they talk to me about this that I don't think it will ever happen again in uh, American politics where a president-elect will go to someone who has run uh, at least two campaigns against him to be uh, and beaten him in one of them uh, to be their White House chief of staff. I don't believe it will ever happen again. I think it says something about the broad-gauge nature of the Gipper. He, uh, he was looking for someone who knew and understood how Washington worked. Coming in from the outside, however, Baker needed to avoid clashes with Reagan loyalists and conservatives. In particular, he had to smooth things over with Ed Meese, the Reagan aide who had run the transition team, been chief of staff to the governor in California, and who expected himself to be named White House Chief of Staff. The next morning I met with the president. He said, Jim, I want you to be my White House Chief of Staff. After I picked myself up off the floor, uh, he looked at me and he said, but I want you to make it right with Ed, Ed Meese, who had been his chief of staff and who was counting on being his chief of staff after he became president. We're both lawyers. And, uh, and I said, well, then let's figure out a, a workable way to divide up the responsibilities in the White House. In that meeting, the two men clearly outlined their responsibilities in order to avoid or minimize conflicts. My job was to make sure was to make the trains run on time. And making the trains run on time meant I had to have authority over the congressional relations, press relations, political relations, and operate from the chief of staff's office, which is uh, the biggest office in the West Wing. That's not to say it was easy or without tension. I had a number of people who some of the more hard-line members of the administration thought were inappropriate because they weren't, uh, quote, Reaganites, close quote. And, but, but there were people who were pragmatic, like, just like I was, and just frankly like Ronald Reagan was, and people who could get the job done and got the job done. James Baker's staffing choices with an emphasis on people who could get things done, along with his firm control over the White House, 
helped ensure Reagan had a successful first term. In his first four years in office, Reagan managed to cut taxes, push for deregulation, and increase defense spending, just as he said he would do in the 1980 campaign. Reagan followed Carter's example by having a dedicated transition team prepare during the election. But he made several important changes. He had a trusted, longtime aide run his transition team, Ed Meese. He chose an experienced hand to be White House Chief of Staff. And he let Baker choose his own staff while the transition team focused on selecting the cabinet. These are all now best practices the Partnership for Public Service recommends today. In part because of the smooth transition, Reagan became one of the most consequential two-term presidents of the 20th century. After serving as Reagan's vice president for eight years, George H.W. Bush ran as the Republican Party's nominee in 1988. That fall, he beat Michael Dukakis, making him the first vice president to become president since Martin Van Buren in 1836. Here's President-elect Bush at a White House ceremony just a few days after his election victory. I don't believe there's a case in modern presidential politics where a president has worked so hard to help someone else achieve this office. And I will always be grateful. I can hardly believe it. But it's sinking in now, the enormity of what has taken place, peaceful election, eventually a peaceful transfer of power. While Bush enjoyed support from President Reagan, a transition within the same political party, well, it's not easy. Sometimes people just don't want to give up their jobs. In April on Transition Lab, we heard from Andy Card. Andy served as Deputy Chief of Staff for Bush, and he spoke about some of the challenges involved in a friendly transition. Most of American history has had transitions that were centered around hostile takeovers. My candidate lost, your candidate won, and it's a different party. This was a friendly takeover, and so we had the added burden of managing the expectations of people who were working for President Reagan, who just assumed if George Bush got elected president, that they'd just stay in their job. While many in the Reagan administration recognized that the new president needed a new team, many appointees, they were reluctant to leave. Reagan's chief of staff at the time, Ken Duberstein, tried to help, but he had mixed success. Ken Duberstein did help by, uh, this was much later on in the transition, by sending letters to all of the appointees saying, uh, a new president is coming in. Uh, we want to make sure the new president has the right to put people in positions that he wants to put in. So think about sending in your letter of resignation. The letter, I don't think, generated any response. <laughs> the start of the Bush administration was... It was a little awkward as a result. While the process may have been difficult, it was crucial that President Bush had the right people in place. As James Baker told us, George H.W. Bush's foreign policy success was in part due to the great team he gathered around him. George Bush knew how his national security apparatus was intended to work, and he saw to it that it worked that way. Part of that was getting people whose competence was uh, unquestionable, but who were friends and who, could, uh, who had been known to work together in past iterations. That's one reason I think we were so successful. When he was leaving office, President Bush put Andy Card in charge of managing his outgoing transition, working to ensure that the incoming president, Bill Clinton, could put his own people in place. And it was surprising how many people, including cabinet members, said, no, 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 that, I'll just wait until they remove me. And so I'm, I'm not planning to leave. <laughs> and President Bush said, no, I promised I would clear the decks, we'll clear the decks. So it was much easier to do that in the context of a hostile takeover than a friendly one, where the conversations were very different. George H.W. Bush is now seen as one of the most successful foreign policy presidents and perhaps the most successful one-term president in U.S. history. He and his team helped bring the Cold War to a peaceful close, among many other accomplishments. President Bush's success abroad, however, did not always carry over at home. In 1992, George H.W. Bush would face a stiff challenge from a young Arkansas governor, Bill Clinton. 
The American economy had slowed under President Bush's watch. By 1992, the public was ready for a change. This is how Mac McClarty, Clinton's chief of staff, described the political landscape on Transition Lab. You'd had President Reagan for eight years, now President George H.W. Bush for four, that's 12 years. There was this sense that we might can do better, and Governor Clinton captured that feeling with his new Democrat uh, approach to, to governing. Governor Clinton ran a tightly focused and well-managed campaign, promising to rejuvenate and reform the American economy. Clinton won a convincing electoral college victory despite a difficult three-way race. Unfortunately, mistakes in Clinton's transition planning would make delivering on his campaign promises more difficult. As he ran his campaign, Clinton decided against developing a substantial transition operation in order to avoid the appearance of hubris. Governor Clinton had a strong feeling, and it was, was understandable even with the benefit of history, that he did not want to be seen as an underdog candidate, uh, a younger uh, candidate who, who was already beginning to measure the drapes in the Oval Office. So his instinct, his inclination was not to have a robust, focused transition effort. While he would eventually become one of the most successful modern presidents, the decision to minimize transition planning would complicate Clinton's launch. Transitions are inevitably challenging, difficult, complicated, and messy. I think some of that, a lot of that, can be mitigated with, again, a lo much longer planning cycle, which I think now is accepted, and that, that's absolutely key to avoiding some of the missteps, mistakes, and challenges that we had in the Clinton administration. At the partnership, we want candidates to measure the drapes. We want them to be ready. We want them to plan well in advance. And successors to Clinton have done just that. Clinton made one other error. He took a similar approach as Governor Carter and selected his cabinet first, well before finalizing his White House staff. When he spoke with us, Mac McClarty described the challenges of playing catch-up after 12 years of Republican administrations. You either have to do them simultaneously or perhaps even better, focus on the White House staff first and then quickly move the cabinet. But it was really a matter there was just not enough work done before the election. And you, once you get behind, it just does not leave you any room to catch up. Clinton and his close aides would spend the days after the election meticulously planning out the cabinet. The results were impressive. At the time, Clinton's cabinet was the most diverse ever, and it featured one of the strongest economic teams in U.S. history, Lloyd Benson, Bob Rubin, Leon Panetta, and Alice Rivlin. During the transition, Clinton also established the National Economic Council in the White House, which for the first time allowed economic policy to be effectively coordinated across government, just like foreign policy was by the National Security Council. Because the White House staff came together late, and because some of his White House staff lacked, well, the right experience, Clinton's first months in office, they were rocky. By his fourth month in office, his approval ratings had dipped below 40%. I was a junior aide in the Clinton White House and remember the gut punch every morning when I walked out of my basement apartment and looked at the headlines in the Washington Post. Clinton then pivoted, as only someone with his remarkable political skills could do. Historian Michael Nelson, who wrote a wonderful book on Clinton, said it best. Clinton is somebody who has a vast capacity to learn from experience and in particular learn from his mistakes. In some ways, that's the best quality a first-year president can have, because nobody's ever done this job before, or a job quite like it. And pivot they did. Under Mack's guidance, the administration adjusted the White House structure, brought in more D.C. hands, and imposed more discipline. Looking back, President Clinton, Mac McClarty, and their teams had as productive a first year as any president in modern history. In his first year alone, Clinton pushed Congress to adopt his economic and deficit reduction plan, negotiated and passed NAFTA, secured an assault weapons ban, and appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the United States Supreme Court. President-elect Clinton, I think, had the credibility with the people of the country that he, he truly cared about him. He was putting them first, and he felt like he, he was just totally devoted and dedicated to get the economy back on track. And I think history, history will judge that he, he fulfilled that promise. Clinton would end his first year with a 56% approval rating, 
and go on to serve two terms in office, during which he would oversee sustained economic growth. In 2000, Clinton's vice president, Al Gore, would run as the Democratic nominee. His opponent, Texas Governor George W. Bush. When election night 2000 came to a close, it was still not clear who would be America's next president. George Bush, governor of Texas, will become the 43rd president of the United States at 18 minutes past 2 o'clock Eastern time. CNN declares that George Walker Bush has won Florida's 25 electoral votes. Vice President Al Gore has called Governor Bush and retracted his concession and because he is now of the mind that things could be turning yet again in Florida. Uh, if there were any more surprises that could take place tonight, it seems impossible to imagine. If this were a movie, people would walk out saying, I didn't buy the ending. That's right. At 2.17 Eastern Time this morning, NBC and all the major TV networks proclaimed George W. Bush the 43rd president of the United States, with Florida and its 25 electoral votes barely putting him over the top. At 4 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time, NBC and all the major television networks took back Florida, saying it was too close to call. And that is where we stand this morning. The legal battle would continue for more than a month. A modern presidential transition is usually carried out over roughly 75 days, already a short period. Every single one of those days counts. In what would become best practice, however, George W. Bush launched his transition planning effort well in advance, and that planning allowed him to overcome the shortened transition period as a result of the disputed election. One of the most difficult parts of any presidential transition is that the White House must fill thousands and thousands of positions within the federal government. The longer it takes to fill those positions, the more difficult a launch of a presidency will be. In Texas, however, George W. Bush had experience appointing lots of people to his government. There are six or seven states that are set up like Texas. Texas had about as many appointees for the governor to make, 3,000 plus, as the federal government did. The voice you just heard is Clay Johnson. Johnson is a longtime friend of George W. Bush. They went to high school together. And when Bush was elected governor of Texas, Bush asked Clay Johnson to manage his gubernatorial transition. In the summer of 1999, over a year before the election, George W. Bush asked Clay Johnson if he would start planning for another transition, this time for president of the United States. So I went down and he said, the other thing I want you to do, Clay, is I want you to prepare a plan for what I do when I win the presidency. This was in June of 1999. So it's 16 months or so before the uh, presidential election. I don't think anybody started that early ever, before or after. And I said, well, that's great. I'm honored that you're asking me. Wow, I'm just overwhelmed. But how do you, since I know nothing about it, how do you suggest I proceed? Clay started his research by talking to the many of the same people we've had on Transition Lab. One of the major conclusions he reached was that George W. Bush should pick his White House chief of staff very early, well before the election. That way, the chief of staff could begin building out the White House staff the day after the election. So if the chief of staff is asked to join the White House team on the day after election day, he he or she is going to have to take a week or 10 days to put his game face on, and you're going to waste a week or 10 days. And when I mentioned it to Bush in the summer, when we get to a month or so away from the election, I'm going to be encouraging you to pick your chief of staff. So you might be thinking about who it ought to be. And he did. Governor George W. Bush secretly asked Andy Card to be his chief of staff designate in the early fall, well before the election. That makes Andy one of the earliest formal chief of staff picks in U.S. history. Having Andy in place allowed George W. Bush to quickly start filling out his White House staff. And because Clay Johnson was close to Bush and his inner circle, and because there was tight coordination between the campaign and the transition, they were able to avoid the squabbles that hurt the Carter transition. Clay Johnson was also able to draw on political veterans with D.C. experience like Dick Cheney, the vice president nominee. Cheney would end up being the chair of the post-election transition while Clay Johnson served as executive director. Andy Carr told me after the fact, he said it was very unusual to ask the vice president-elect 
to be the chair of the transition. I said, why is that unusual? And he said, well, it's because that um, there's somebody else then that's being interviewed uh, and it takes it can take some press attention and public attention away from the person they elected to be president. But Cheney was a perfect person to be the chair of the transition. He knew about D.C. He knew what had to be done to reach out to Congress, reach out with key industry groups. So to have somebody with his experience just made so much sense. All of this, the early start, the trust between Clay Johnson and the rest of the Bush team, the coordination between the transition team and the campaign, the presence of experienced D.C. hands. This would put the Bush transition in a strong position despite the tumultuous election. When the election was finally decided by the Supreme Court, Al Gore gave one of the most gracious concession speeches in American history, emphasizing the importance of the peaceful transition of power. Almost a century and a half ago, Senator Stephen Douglas told Abraham Lincoln, who had just defeated him for the presidency, partisan feeling must yield to patriotism. I'm with you, Mr. President, and God bless you. Well, in that same spirit, I say to President-elect Bush that what remains of partisan rancor must now be put aside, and may God bless his stewardship of this country. Now the U.S. Supreme Court has spoken. Let there be no doubt, while I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. I accept the finality of this outcome, which will be ratified next Monday in the Electoral College. And tonight, for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession. The Bush team's early transition planning allowed them to hit the ground running. Before the year was over and done with, we had done as well in the first year as any prior uh, administration had done. Clay's being modest there. By the one-year mark, the Bush administration appointed more Senate-confirmed officials than any other president in history. Despite some struggles, early preparation, D.C. experience, and early focus on the White House staff enabled the Bush presidency to start relatively smoothly. George W. Bush did not intend to be a wartime president. After all, he campaigned on education reform and tax cuts. The September 11th attacks, however, would forever change the trajectory of his presidency and the country. The terrorist attacks and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that followed changed how Democrats and Republicans thought about and approached transitions. For the first time in decades, a transition would happen during wartime. In the spring of 2008, then-candidate Senator Barack Obama asked Chris Liu to organize his transition. Now, we've highlighted the importance of having a trusted aide run the transition so the candidate can focus on campaigning, and they know the transition's being taken care of. Like Clay Johnson, Chris Liu had been close to Obama for years. They had been classmates in law school, and Liu spent several years helping to run Obama's Senate office. Here's Chris Liu. During my time you know, with Obama as a legislative director, uh, I helped edit his book, I helped deal with his finances and his taxes. I helped deal with personal. I mean, I I did all kinds of things for him where over the course of that period of time, I essentially had earned my trust. During the spring of 2008, Lou and a small team began building out Obama's transition operation. They would soon be joined by John Podesta, a D.C. veteran who had served as President Clinton's White House chief of staff. We had no place to work from. Uh, fortunately, our campaign, the Obama campaign, had a D.C. fundraising office that they were vacating. And so we took over their office. Um, it was you know, about a stone's throw from the U.S. Senate uh, above a Subway sub shop. And so you would smell uh, the fresh bread from Subway every day. Overseeing two wars and an economy that was collapsing, George W. Bush had become a highly unpopular president. He left office with only a 34 percent approval rating. In fact, both Senator Obama and his Republican rival, Senator John McCain, both ran against the legacy of George W. Bush. Bush, however, was determined to make sure the next president would transition into office without a problem. Both Obama and McCain were fashioning their campaigns as not Bush. And, and God bless him, George W. Bush understood that and did not take it personally. He didn't take it personally. And some, of, some of the rest of us did. That's Josh Bolton. 
He served as Andy Card's deputy chief of staff and then became White House chief of staff in 2006. In 2007, with his second term coming to a close, George W. Bush tasked Josh Bolton with making sure that he had the best outgoing transition possible, regardless of who won the election. He said, you know, prepare a really good, professional, smooth transition because this is the first transition in modern history when the United States itself is under threat and we have a, we have a national security responsibility here and uh, do, the best, uh, do the best possible job you can regardless of who wins this election. Earlier this year on Transition Lab, we spoke to Michelle Flournoy, who led the DOD transition for Obama. She pointed out that national security threats were both real and common during presidential transitions. There were active threat streams on Inauguration Day um, that people were worried about. Um, we've seen in other cases uh, attacks happen as transitions occur. It's a time where uh, hundreds, if actually thousands of people are literally walking out the door and their replacements have not walked in yet. Josh Bolton worked closely with both the Obama and McCain teams to ensure that each candidate was ready to take charge on January 20th. Josh while I'm sure he preferred, he would have preferred that um, Senator McCain succeeded him, he never played favorites. He never put his thumb on the scale. He understood that this was a, an edict that had come down from President Bush, and he wanted to carry it through. After Senator Obama's victory, George W. Bush pledged to give him his full support. In fact, Bush gave perhaps the most detailed comments ever by a president on the importance of a smooth transition. Let's listen. This peaceful transfer of power is one of the hallmarks of a true democracy. And ensuring that this transition is as smooth as possible is a priority for the rest of my presidency. We face economic challenges that will not pause to let a new president settle in. This will also be America's first wartime presidential transition in four decades. So over the next 75 days, all of us must ensure that the next president and his team can hit the ground running. The cooperation between the Bush and Obama teams would be critical to the transition. In the fall of 2008, the American financial system began to collapse. Unemployment soared, banks failed, and millions of Americans lost their homes. Saving the economy would require aggressive action by the federal government. After the election, the Obama transition team had to decide how to prepare to meet the crisis while still respecting the fact there was only one president at one time. Whatever decisions the Congress or the president made, however, would shape Obama's term. Naturally, the transition team became involved in those decisions. Here's Stephanie Cutter, the spokesperson for the Obama transition. Thankfully, the Bush team uh, couldn't have been more helpful. We were working so closely in cooperation with them, and they were being extraordinarily helpful to us because of the economic crisis that right. we were in. As soon as you move from a campaign to a transition, out goes the campaign rhetoric. It's not Bush's economy this and failure that. It's what are we going to do? Right. It's looking to the future. It's putting real plans in place. Thanks to this extensive cooperation with the Bush team, the Obama administration was able to enter office smoothly despite being in the middle of a global financial crisis and two wars. That's another key lesson about transitions. Cooperation from an outgoing administration, absolutely critical. Harry Truman tried it. George W. Bush did it. So far in this podcast, we've looked at successful campaigns and successful transitions. Let's take a slight detour and talk about a transition that never ended up happening but the planning for which would shape how future transitions would be run. In 2012, Governor Mitt Romney was nominated as the Republican nominee against President Obama. A former businessman and consultant, Romney was deadly serious about preparing to be president. And to lead his transition, he chose someone who was just as serious about planning. Mike Levitt, a former Utah governor and cabinet secretary, in the George W. Bush administration. I've been involved in public policy for many years in different roles, and I would say that it was among the most challenging things and maybe the most exhilarating experience I have had in a concentrated uh, period of four or five months. It's serious business. Uh, you, 
transitioning the leadership of the free world. Personally, I think no person should run for president of the United States without understanding and shouldering the, this is a part, of, a part of the obligation. Governor Levitt began working on transition issues early in the spring of 2012. The executive director of the transition team was Chris Liddell, who you'll hear more about later. We ended up with a little group of four or five people, and we spent uh, from about the middle of April until actually September working in a very quiet way with a small group, literally whiteboarding out what would uh, a transition look like. We had to devise objectives. We had to think through and game it out and develop plans. And we concluded very early we would keep good track of what we did. People could learn from our mistakes. And uh, and I think in on balance, that turned out to be a good strategy. Like many other transition leads, Governor Levitt had won the trust of the candidate. He and Governor Romney worked closely on the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympic Games. And as we've seen, and as we will see with the Trump transition, that kind of trust is essential for a well-functioning transition effort. I would sit in where he would sit, and therefore I needed to be able to express his philosophy and to have a sense of how he would respond to things. And I'm sure I got a few things wrong, but for the most part, I knew what was in his head and to a large degree what was in his heart. And uh, if I didn't, I would ask and I would proceed. Governor Levitt didn't just stand in for the candidate, however. He also implemented a number of policies to ensure that the campaign and the transition were on the same page. The first was we adopted the the philosophy that the campaign dealt with policy mm-hmm. and we dealt, dealt with planning implementation. Mm-hmm. That way the campaign didn't have to worry that somehow we were down originating policy that was going to be contrary to the candidate or that there were people who were going to insert their own agendas uh, into that process. The second thing is that I spent a day a week in Boston at the campaign. And uh, we actually developed processes where no significant decisions were made that did not include the senior people from the campaign. We actually had a plan to integrate the campaign leadership into the transition. We did everything we could to give people comfort that we weren't uh, a rogue organization operating on our own. The Romney transition also worked closely with the sitting president, Barack Obama. I very early on um, made contact with Dennis McDonough, who was um, the chief of staff for President Obama. And we had a a straightforward conversation that was essentially, like, let's acknowledge that uh, we have different points of view and that we have different objectives, but that we also have a mutual responsibility. In 2012, the Partnership for Public Service hosted a meeting where senior Romney officials, senior Obama officials, and transition experts met to talk about transition planning. Here we had two opposing sides brought together for the good of the country. I recall um, a phrase that was used, and that is, we're all going to leave our swords at the door. And I thought at the time, uh, this would inspire Americans if they could see the seriousness with which this is being taken and to see opposing campaigns and the administration uh, actually working together. On election day, the Romney transition team had 500 people ready to go into government should they have won. As it happened, President Obama won re-election. CNN projects that Barack Obama will be re-elected president of the United States. He will remain in the White House for another four years. Governor Levitt and Chris Liddell, as good public servants, were determined not to let their good work go to waste. We had this great ship that wasn't going to sail. Right. Uh, and we concluded, let's spend that three months and a little bit of the money we had left over, and um, let's write a book that will at least form the basis for others to start. Congress would eventually pass new legislation to reform the transition law that would bear Governor Levitt's name along with Ted Kaufman, the person that's now leading Vice President Biden's transition effort. Governor Levitt and Chris Liddell's book, The Romney Readiness Project, would guide subsequent transition planning efforts, including that of our next president, Donald J. Trump. In 2016, Donald Trump managed to win the Republican nomination 
despite having little political in Washington experience. Governor Chris Christie, a longtime friend of Trump, but also one of the Republican primary opponents, he was the first mainstream Republican to endorse the New York businessman. When Governor Christie came on Transition Lab, I asked him why. I knew he was going to win. I mean, it was that simple. I watched this guy lose by a, by a whisker to Ted Cruz in Iowa, beat the best Republican field I had seen in my lifetime in New Hampshire by double digits, and then go and win in South Carolina by double digits. And I said, it's over. And by the way, if it was anybody but Donald Trump, so would everyone else have said it was over. They just couldn't come to grips with it. Unfortunately, Donald Trump was suspicious of transition planning. He told his advisors it was bad karma. But Christie pointed to the Presidential Transition Act and told Trump he had an obligation to plan. As a governor, Christie knew how difficult transitioning into office could be. So Trump asked Governor Christie to lead his transition effort. He gave me a call in early May. This was going to be the first time that that transition law was really held to that was passed by Congress. And, and, and so he was being required to run a transition. He did not want to run one, but he knew that legally he had to do it. From the start, Trump himself was not very involved in the transition, nor did he think it was important. His attention was on the campaign he was waging against Hillary Clinton. The only time I ever really spoke to him about it after that was on you know, rare occasions where he read something in the in news about the transition, and he would then you know call and give me some reaction to it. And each time he called, he'd say to me, Chris, you're wasting a lot of time on this. You and I are both so smart that if we win this thing, we can do the entire transition if we just leave the, the, the victory party two hours early. Governor Christie, however, was determined to plan an effective transition. He began by building out his team, reaching out to his old New Jersey chief of staff, Rich Bagger. I was in Tokyo, had jet lag, turned on uh, my iPad, looked at the New York Times and saw that Chris Christie uh, would be leading the Trump transition and, and immediately had a sense that this would somehow uh, involve me. A few days later when I was uh, back home, uh, he called me and, and asked if I'd take a leave of absence from my position and uh, work on the transition. The two of them began to collect materials and reach out to the people who could help them build out a transition, including the Romney transition team. Well, I first reached out to Chris Liddell, who had, along with others, had run the Romney transition preparation in 2012. And they were very generous in sharing all kinds of information um, with me. For me, literally what I did is I got a hold of the transition guide published by the Partnership for Public Service, as well as the book that had been published by the uh, Romney transition uh, team following 2012. Read those or like really studied them uh, carefully. Over the course of their transition, Christie and Bagger also met many of the people we've had on Transition Lab. I met with um, Andy Card, who, along with Vice President Cheney, ran the transition for the Bush, George W. Bush team. I met with Jim Baker, who was instrumental in the Bush 41 transition and in the Ronald Reagan transition. And I also met with a, a number of other folks who were involved kind of around the periphery in, in those transition efforts going back to Ronald Reagan. The Trump team also worked closely with Obama Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough. Again, we had two opposing parties working together cooperatively on the peaceful transition of power. I never had any conflict with Dennis. He was always a gentleman, and anything that I asked for, uh, he gave me. By election day, the transition team was ready. Here's Chris Christie and Rich Bagger. On that Monday, we turned over 20 volumes of materials to the Trump campaign uh, for them to be ready to begin to execute on Wednesday. I'm proud to say that we were ready and uh, accomplished all of our deliverables. Then came Election Day. Right now, a historic moment. Uh, we can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency. In a major upset, Trump won the 2016 election. The transition soon ran into trouble. While Chris Christie and Donald Trump had a good and longtime relationship, there were major tensions between Christie and Trump's inner circle. Just days after the election, 
Christie was asked to leave his post. And when the meeting concluded, Steve Bannon asked if I'd come see him in his office. So I did. I went down to his office and, you know, anybody who knows Steve, he's not a guy with a lot of niceties about him. So we sat down. I said, what's up? And he goes, we need to make some changes. And I said, okay, what changes are we making? And he goes, you. And I said, are you kidding me? And he said, no, no. Vice President Pence is now going to be the chair of the transition and you're out. Rich Bagger would resign shortly thereafter. And the work done by the original Chris Christie transition team, it was tossed in the trash. Over the transition and the start of the Trump administration, the failure to rely on good transition planning would be costly. Here's Chris Christie. They still haven't recovered. The first term is almost over and they still haven't recovered. Because you cannot recover from the loss of all of that work. And even if they win a second term, they won't catch up. Because you gave away that 150 days or so. You can never get it back. And those are 150 very important days. That brings us to the present day. As we're releasing this, we're 49 days away from the election. Members of the Biden transition team and the Trump administration are both making detailed preparations for what they'll do. The Biden transition team is led by former Senator Ted Kaufman, almost the perfect person to lead a transition. He's trusted by the candidate. We know how that's important. He's almost even a peer. He knows Washington. We know that that's important. And Ted literally authored transition legislation while he was in the Senate. Remember Chris Liddell, who ran the Romney transition with Governor Levitt? He was the first person Chris Christie called for advice. Now Chris Liddell is in the White House, planning for a potential transition to a second term should Trump win in November. This is perhaps the most important election since 1932. Our economy's in shambles. We face a global pandemic, and our country is bitterly, bitterly divided. Regardless of who wins, every American should want their president to be successful. And a successful presidency depends on a successful transition. Both sides in this bitter, bitter election should remember that the peaceful transition of power, the most solemn of American traditions, depends on bipartisan cooperation. Many of the presidents we've discussed deeply disagreed with each other. But when election day came, they were ready. They were ready to share power, and they were ready to give up power. Transitions, the willingness to step down without a fight, that's the bedrock of the American democratic system. In four years, when we look back at this moment, it will hopefully be a model for generations to come. Now, we've done more than 30 episodes of Transition Lab. What started as an experiment has really taken off. Let me thank the team members who have been so important to its success. Alex Tippett, Katie Bryan, Amelia Ziegler, Carter Hirshhorn, and our producer extraordinaire, Paul Woody Woodle of District Productive. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.